Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Usurpers, the science fiction classic written by Jeff St. Renard. An alien invasion classic too intense for its time. When The Usurpers first appeared in the magazine Imagination during the early 1950s, Nebula and Hugo Award winner Robert Silverberg wrote that Jeff St. Renard's work is off the beaten track. The concept of aliens masquerading in human form is not at all new, but this story is different and powerful and considered a minor sci-fi classic. Considered too strong by the book publishers of the era, The Usurpers has never been republished in the past decade since. Now you can listen to this science fiction classic and judge for yourself. Here's a story that is bound to remind you of Night of the Living Dead and The Thing. Science fiction often speculated about whether aliens might walk the earth masquerading as human beings. Jerry Wolfe discovered it was true. He had seen the aliens in their actual form. He must be high, you say. Don't laugh. Your best friend is one of them. Discover what happens when a handful of brave men and women decide to pit their puny forces against the might of Earth's secret masters and the governments they control. You will find romance, action, and daring speculation in this lost classic in its first ever audiobook publication. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Usurpers. Book 1. Jerry's Story Chapter 1. A needy, hollow-eyed, sharp-looking wretch, a living dead man. The Comedy of Errors. Brandy in the library, Johnson, I said to the waiter. I walked through the crowded dining room. It was Saturday, and everyone was in town, and through the huge mausoleum, with its dozing old men in their deep armchairs dreaming about happier younger days, and into the library. Selecting one comfortable end of the maroon-breathed Chesterfield, I sank into its tool depths and wriggled myself into a position from which I could stare at the terrible scar that runs through the east wall, right down from the ceiling through bookshelves to cracked marble floor. I have a sneaking affection for that dreadful eyesore. It was made by a dud bomb, just a little fellow, who burrowed his way down through our club in the darkest days of the London Blitz, and... Although he utterly spoiled our sets of Dickens, Scott, Meredith and Hardy, and pulverised seven volumes of The Decline and Fall, not to mention obliterating a first edition of one of Keats' things, I forget which, well, I should be sorry indeed when the Glosser Club finally gets around to repairing the damage he did. The ugly swath he cut reminds me of the war, you see. Oh, I've no nostalgia for it. Any normal man must. I loathe and abominate war. But in those days I had a dozen friends who were gone now. I had comradeship and a high courageous good humour all about me. And I had my left arm instead of a sleeve which I must pin to the front of my coat every morning. When I look at the scar of the little dud I can hear the ghosts of laughter and of jests cracked in the face of hell's own fire. I can hear Johnny Kildane's voice saying, Ruddy good barrage the Huns are getting tonight and Aunt Milan's answering drawl. Please, Jove, they'll hang about till we can get up there on their tails. 
I suppose it's much the same sort of thing those old duffers in the mausoleum remember, as they gaze like so many mummies at huge portraits of generals and admirals who were already legends when I was born. From the expressions on some of their withered faces, I imagine they can even smell the powder and the smoke drifting over the battlefields. Lord, we old soldiers are a dreamy lot. Johnson drifted in, bearing a great breather glass with a wee puddle of brandy in the bottom. I warmed it with my hands and sighed a little as I thought about what I thought about. And then Jerry Wolfe came into the library, or at any rate his ghost did. He, or it, came straight over and dropped down in the Chesterfield beside me, and, as well as I could with one arm, I pressed him or it to my chest and made loud noises of disbelief. I say ghost for two reasons. One, I had thought he was long since dead and buried, and two, he looked as though he'd just taken out a long-term lease on a marble tomb and was going to move in. Haggard, greying at the temples, his eyes sunken, his suit torn and dirty, he looked positively ghastly. Nevertheless, it was really old Jerry, and I beat him on the back and crowed happily, much to the horror of the older members seated near us. Wolf, you flea-covered, sun-baked, lousy old relic of a bygone day! How the flaming hell are you? I yammered. The ghost grinned, with just a faint touch of the old wolf gaiety, and he said, with more feeling than I'd ever heard put in the words before, Alec, old horse, you are a sight for sore eyes, but please don't advertise my presence so loudly, will you? Johnson materialised at my elbow. I gave him the high sign for a bottle of scotch, and with a grave nod he faded again. Jerry, I said happily, I thought you'd got it years ago. He gave me a lopsided and feeble imitation of the justly celebrated wolf smile, and said, Well, it hasn't been years, but I've had it. Then, before I could hem and haw and ask him what he meant, Johnson came up, apparently through the floor, with a bottle of the best and a siphon on a tray with a couple of glasses. I splashed about five fingers into a glass, dampened it slightly with soda, and passed it to Wolf, who looked as if he needed it. When we were alone again, he leaned back into the maroon leather and stared into his drink as though it might have been a crystal ball. Alec Talbot, you one-armed paper-hanger, you are a veritable sight for sore eyes, he repeated. Then he took a sip that would have drowned a medium-sized rhinoceros, and was silent. He was still a handsome big man, was Jerry Wolf, as he sprawled there on the Chesterfield beside me in his worn blue suit, lean, just tanned enough face, small moustache, long rangy body. He looked precisely like the man I had seen last at Dunkirk, years upon years ago. And yet, there were the differences. His eyes, for one thing, his grey hair and his face was sombre, not exactly sullen, but without the faintest trace of happiness in it. I leaned closer and squinted at his sunken eyes. They were a cool ice-blue, as they'd always been, and, all around them, were little short dashes of pink-white scars, like tiny hen-tracks running clean across the bridge of his nose and scattering out from his eyes towards the ears. "'You've caught one,' I said." Ruefully, he touched a finger to his eyebrow. We were playing the silly madasses with some old tower muskets we'd found in a secret cache near Peshawar, he said. It was shortly before we vacated India. 
we were almost the last to leave. Some fool, you know him, and I won't tell you his name, let off one of them at a ramper hound that was lolloping past. We were all fairly tight, so there was some excuse. Well, I was standing just beside it, the muzzle of the musket, I mean, and the flash took me spang across the eyes. They were in a bandage when we left India. The medico took them off on the boat coming back. So you've been in India, I said. Five years. I thought you were dead. Most of our old gang is, you know. All the better for them, he said cryptically. Pour me another, will you, Alec? I sloshed him out another half-pint, put a spray of soda on the surface. I don't know, I said reflectively. I've lost a flipper, but I'm glad to be around even so. The sun still shines once a month. Listen to me, old hound, said Jerry Wolf, fixing me with those sunken, scarred, hypnotic ice-blue eyes. I'm going to tell you my yarn. Must tell it to you. And when I'm done, you'll either curse me for a maniac or damn me for telling you what no man on earth should know. I don't want to tell you, you understand, but I must tell someone, as the man always says before he spiels his little speech, and you're the first and only candidate I've met whom I could tell. And it's vital, so frightfully vital. Haven't you seen any one of our boys at all, till now? I asked, feeling pretty uncomfortable at his queer words. Kincaid's in town somewhere, and... Kincaid? said Jerry, looking as if the name put a dark brown taste into his mouth. I've seen him. Couldn't very well tell him. Well, go ahead, old chap, I said, thinking it couldn't be as bad by half as he was looking, and that it was probably some deep, dark sin that he'd brooded on till it got out of proportion. Let's have it. All right, Alec, and forgive me in advance, will you? For what, Jerry? For spoiling your sleep for the rest of your life, said he and after another long drink, he went on to tell me his story. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Usurpers. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.